the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thank you for joining us today for On the Road with Jesus, hosted by Rhody Fisher. As a Christian mom for over 40 years and a teacher of the Bible in public schools for 25 years, Rhody will take you on a journey with some of her friends as they share their experiences and testimonies from their walk with Christ. You'll see that you are not alone in your search for God, your victories with Him, or your failures. Welcome to On the Road with Jesus. Now, here's your host, Rhody Fisher. Welcome to On the Road with Jesus. Thank you for joining us today. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would search us, O oh Lord, and know our heart. Try us and know our thoughts. See if there's any wicked way about us, Lord, and lead us in the way of everlasting. We praise you. We love you. We honor you. Bless the listeners today in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, we are in a very, very short psalm here. We're going to go to Psalm 117. Oh, praise the Lord, all ye nations. Praise him, all ye people, for his merciful kindness is great towards us. And the truth of the Lord endureth forever. Praise ye the Lord. Thank you for that word. Praise the Lord. I love that. Um, I'd like to introduce our special guest today. I'm thinking I might have met him like maybe six years ago, kind of casually, um, but actually maybe spoke to him first time, I want to say four or five years ago. Um, his, his name is Edward, Dr. Edward Dalcor. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Rody. Okay. Um, I'm thinking he's got, there he is. Welcome. Um, Edward, today we're going to be talking about the reason for Christianity. But before we do that, if you could give our listeners that have, that know you a reminder of your testimony, those that haven't heard your testimony, a short, shortened version, maybe five, seven minutes of how the Lord saved you. When did you have that born again experience? Uh, actually, my testimony is about two and a half hours, so I'm going <laughs> to just kidding. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> this weird church picked me up in a van. No, um, I, simply, <clears throat> I know everyone has a different testimony when God saved them. For me, <clears throat> um, I was brought up in a Christian home. <clears throat> As like a lot of folks who are brought up in Christian homes, they, um, it's a friend of mine used to say when he would testify, he used to say he had a drug problem. When he was young, his parents would drag him or they drug him to church all the time. That's so, cute. yeah, so I was brought up in a Christian home and I was uh, I was always going to church, you know. But, of course, there's a whole lot. It's a whole lot different, you know, being saved and then just attending a church. Many attend a church. Unfortunately, there's a lot of folks out there who have a false sense of security because there's they're not converted, but they go to church on particular holidays or whatever, or they're brought up in a Christian home or they're, they see themselves as a good person better than those other people who do all these evil acts. But the fact of the matter is, um, I'm not, I wasn't, I don't know if I was, it's so hard to differentiate, you know, true salvation back then. And I understand some people have a date and time. I was saved January 4th, 1974. I was in, you know, the Cougars motorcycle gang and I was drinking, I was a drunk and all these things. And then God, you know, I went to this revival, I heard the gospel, and I believe right then. A lot of people have dates and times, but a lot of people don't, especially the people like me who was who were born in a Christian home, always hearing the gospel, going to a Baptist church. So it's hard for me to pinpoint exactly what happened when God saved me. But I tell you, back then, I'm not sure, I don't think I was saved. Um, you know, scripture says, particularly in John eleven twenty six and other places, it's not just believing but Jesus says, whoever is um, living and believing in me will never, ever, not even a possibility, perish. Living and believing. And that clause right there in, in John eleven twenty six shows that the living and believing are simultaneous actions. So I wasn't exactly living, but 
but I can't say I didn't believe, you know, it, it was just an interesting situation, but it was really after college, um, that I started contemplating even more, um, my faith and so on and so forth, contemplating more where I was at spiritually and everything I've, cause I was exposed to the gospel, you know, unlike a lot of people at, at a early age, I was exposed to the gospel, even at the church I was going to. And then, um, I really recalculated where I was at probably a better term. And after that, um, I started getting, uh, going to this other church, attending church. I, I believe I was getting closer to, um, uh, at least closer in realizing what true salvation was because mm-hmm. the problem I think with a whole lot of folks, they just don't understand true salvation mm-hmm. and they have all kinds of views that are not biblical in terms of what is or what is not salvation. Um, and then I was at a point in the late nineties, I, or early nineties, I was asked to, um, to interview with this guy named John Jacobs and he had this athletic ministry back then. And I said, oh yeah, I, I've heard of these guys, you know, it was called the power team. Mm-hmm. Don't tell many people that, but no. I love world. the power team. They were really <laughs> popular and everybody watched them on TV. Yeah. I mean, back in the nineties, it was super popular because WWF was super popular. So right. they coincided and um, yeah, it was, it was huge. And we went to the biggest churches in America and all these things. And, um, you know, believe it or not, we went to um, John Osteen's church and mm-hmm. his son, Joel, was the guy driving us around, you know, the hospitality guys saying how great we were, you know. How, how was, funny. Yeah, it was really Wow, funny. that's great. He probably could really relate to you guys because he was that age, you know. Um, yeah. And like he, really... I don't know what, I think he was like an associate. But um, so I was on this athletic ministry and I saw a lot. I really opened my eyes to what Christianity was, what it wasn't. Um, just church life and all these things. Cause we went in, you know, so many churches, we'd speak at public schools, 1500, 1500 public schools a year. Wow. And um, now we couldn't mention any, have any kind of religious connotation, but we would invite them out to the night crusade where we do evangelism and they would hear the gospel. Cause that's all we would, we were really limited in a good way to the gospel in our presentation. You know, we weren't talking about other things behind, you know, on stage, but really the God, someone would testify and then we'd do these athletic feats. And then at the end, we'd give a gospel presentation. <clears throat> and um, But they would come from the schools. We did 63 public schools in Houston, Texas, when we were at that Osteen church. I never heard of these guys before I was there in the 90s. But um, And they all came, all these gang members and all these people came, and then they heard the gospel. So I was in that for a while, um, about 10 years, actually, all through the 90s. And then um, I started really, um, my interests were driven to apologetics because a Jehovah witness came to my door one time in the mid nineties. And I wasn't sure how to answer every single objection he had. It's always on the deity of Christ. So it really prompted me to study that and to study that group, which springboarded to all kinds of other groups. Also, it it prompted me to want to know the original language because they would always use it. Uh, Colts love to quote, throw, throw out a Greek term or a Hebrew term. They have no idea what they're talking about, but they like to do it to sound smart and, or that's what they've been taught. And so that prompted me to study languages. And, and then after that late nineties, early two thousands, I started doing apologetics, um, full-time ministry, not a hobby. I did it full-time. I started teaching all these things. So fast forward today, um, I'm a, I, I teach at two Christian universities, um, one is correspondence uh, in, in London, actually, and um, others I g- physically go to, uh, this one in downtown L.A. Mm-hmm. And then I lecture on Christian education, Christian apologetics, and um, I, I feel privileged um, being in the position that God placed me in. But it was a long process, you know, and um, it doesn't happen overnight, you know, and it's not yeah. for everyone. Full-time ministry is not for everyone, you know. Right, right. Sometimes you're in full-time ministry and you don't realize that you are because you're not getting a check. But here, here we are. But, you know, I was going to mention as you were talking, um, I didn't realize how long the power team was around. I just know that my kids grew up on it and they, you know, were always dialing in old. and always checking. Well, I'm old. Just think about that. Um, and, and, and gosh, you were in it for 10 years. It's a long time. Um, not just keeping your physical strength up, but your spiritual strength must have grown through all of 
all of the things that you were doing to, you know, lead people to Christ and whatever. I'll tell you what's interesting. My, my theological growth, I had so much theological growth because we'd go to churches and we'd go to all kinds of churches because everyone wanted us because it was just evangelism. It, it, it was beyond denominations. It was just evangelism. Mm-hmm. But I would see really goofy things and hear goofy things. I'd hear good things. I'd hear, you know, within churches and at, I would get upset at bad doctrine and it really prompted that's what I think escalated my theological, my desire for theology and knowing to be accurate, which is very important. Not everyone puts stock in that, you know, you, you, and I'm sure you've heard this thing too, where people say, give me G, you know, I don't need doctrine. I just need Jesus, which is, right. you know, it doesn't make sense because anytime well, you talk about Jesus, it's theology. Um, my husband and I have traveled a lot. And what we found is in a lot of churches, and I'm not just saying here in the United States, because here in the United States, it changes from church to church. But even outside the church, the, you know, the country, I, I call it cultural Christianity. I just don't even know what else to call it because they throw in their culture along with the word of God. So they bring in, you know, um, I don't know, voodoo Christianity. I don't, I don't know what else to call it. There's there's this stuff that they bring in that's very similar to what they used to worship before and and join forces with, you know, with Christianity. Um, That's why it's so important to stay close to the word of God, because they they bring in other things. But anyhow, I'm glad you're in your 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 defending the faith. Let's just say that. And, and teaching people how to defend the faith as well. Um, so thank you for, for your um, testimony. It's, it's interesting because at one point, I have a lot of friends like you that were brought up in the church and um, can't remember the day because they're, you know, my grandson was three years old. And if we walked into a restaurant, he would tell people about Jesus. It's just the way he his brain operated. And by the way, he still does it. He very much is an evangelist. He loves to tell people on a one-on-one. He'll even baptize people after he's, you know, discipled them, you know, friends and high school friends and whatever, um, because he's constantly talking about the Lord. And I don't know that he remembers a date either. But I like to think it as, so I don't have a date either, but I do have the month. I know, and I could look it up because I know when it was. Um, it was on a Thursday in October. There's only four Thursdays. So I could figure it out if I did the math and went back and looked at um, 1973 in October. Um, so I do have the month and the year, and maybe it's it's frivolous. Maybe I should look it up. I I, I, it wasn't important enough just to know a, the actual date for me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just that I was saved and, you know, God knows the date and whatever. Okay. So, but um, yeah. I I think of it as um, <clears throat> some people are very, um, you know, they want to know the day, but I'm, I'm, I'm just wanting to know your testimony. And some people God will say, some people will question, I've heard people question salvation, someone's salvation because they can't remember the date, which is ridiculous. Oh, wow. Yeah, legalists. That's what we call them, legalists. But anyhow, um, thank you for sharing that. We are going to speak on the reason, the reasons for Christianity. And um, and so what say you about that? Um, it, it's interesting because when we look at evidence for Christianity first, we never... Um, I don't want to be misconstrued. We, we never put, I believe we don't have to put God on trial. I think he takes a very dim view of people that put him on trial. Um, mm. He's true in spite of anything else, in spite of any philosophy or any uh, view uh, for him against him. He is true regardless. Let God be true and all men liars. But there are, I found within a Christian, uh, within Christianity, true Christianity, um, at least from a subjective standpoint, there is evidences. Um, by the way we live, by our by our um, desire to live for Christ, um, uh, our change of a change of heart. Um, it doesn't mean you don't you can't do the same sins a non-believer can. However, we have a different desire as regenerate Christians. We should, and the, and I call this subjective reasons for Christianity a changed life. But also, there's objective reasons. 
and the objective reasons for Christianity would be the the factual data. And it is a synergistic um, uh, process here, meaning there's subjective, you know, when you're saved, mm-hmm. your change of life. And then there's objective uh, reasons, the physical resurrection of Christ, which proved it didn't make him Messiah. It proved he was Messiah. It proved he was God. So there is objective reasons, factual reasons, and then there's subjective reasons for Christianity. So I was going to spend a few minutes to speak of the two aspects of of, um, of Christianity because I think it's interesting. Um, I think we have to, number one, we have to see that the source of the Old Testament, both in the Old and New Testament, was Jesus Christ. Some would say, well, what do you mean? He, he wasn't in the New Test- or Old Testament. And it, I cringe when I hear that. Because that wasn't the view of the New Testament um, of the New Testament authors. In fact, Peter says in Acts ten verses thirty six. It's a great verse. Peter, apostle Christ, he says this. He says the word which God or He Yahweh sent to the sons of Israel, the Old Testament, and then he says preaching. And this word preaching in ten thirty six, very interesting. It's from the verb translated gospel, right? Angelizo, but it's a participle. So literally, it would be Yahweh sent the sons of Israel. This is the word he sent. This is the message, gospelizing peace through Jesus Christ, he's Lord over all. That's amazing. This was, this was the message to the Old Testament saints, preaching, gospelizing peace through Jesus Christ. Well, according to Peter, it was. And then in verse 43, a few verses later, he says this. He says of him, or literally to him, right, Christ, Pantes, all the prophets testify that everyone believing, the ones believing in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. So the centerpiece of the Old Testament, to be sure, was Jesus Christ. We see his activity. We can spend all day talking about him as the angel of the Lord and interacting with Moses and Hagar and Abraham and uh, other Old Testament personalities. And they understood that he was Yahweh, but distinct from the Father. So we see his his pre-existent life in the Old Testament, and they all look forward to the Messiah. And that was the word that God sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ. So the evidence I found um, within Christianity, number one, there's it's twofold. There's subjective evidence, as we talked about, then there's objective. The subjective evidence really is a transformation of life. The reason why I call it subjective is because you know, it, it, it has to do individualistically. It has to do with, with how you were living and so on and so forth. But there is a transformation of life. Um, there is a security and trust. I call that subjective evidence because let's face it, Rody, not every real true Christian has this enormous faith every day where they wake up and said, I'm going to conquer the world through Christ because he's in me. I mean, you know, our faith goes like this and some Christians, Christianity is based on in terms of uh, theology, it is based on the work of Christ and our reconciliation, which is objective. Many people wake up, Christians wake up angry, wake up depressed, have addictions. But if they're a truly regenerate Christian, they are reconciled and they are justified. That doesn't waver. But our daily faith is wa- waver sometimes. You know, we don't trust God all the time, you know, in, in the, the middle of trials and tribulations, you know, where is he and all these things. But if you're truly a safe person, your belief, your initial faith never changes. So that's the subjective evidence of Christianity. The objective evidence of Christianity is denoted, as mentioned, um, the reliability of the documents, um, the evidence of the doctrine of the Trinity, the evidence of, the, of, the, of God the Son's life, his death, and his resurrection, and the biblical evidence, and this is important, save through faith alone. Why I punctuate that is because there's millions of professing Christians who deny that justification is through faith alone. There's many groups who will say, I believe in the deity of Christ and Trinity and all these things, but I need other things to help Christ save me. I need my meritorious works. I need Mary. I need prayers of the saints or whatever. They're climbing on the cross trying to help Christ. And it's not through faith alone in in this kind of philosophy of so many groups, but it's faith and works. But the biblical evidence shows it's through faith alone. So briefly, I want to look more in more detail the subjective evidence. The test of Christianity as... So, as, so let me hold, hold, hold you up just a little bit. Um, when you say through faith alone, um, <clears throat> there is that scripture 
that says we're justified by faith um, through Christ, right? Mm-hmm. It's it's by faith alone, through Christ alone, um, justified by faith, Christ, and there's another one. There's three things. Grace I, alone, faith alone, Christ alone. Grace, grace alone, yeah. yeah. Faith uh-huh. alone, Christ alone. So, but that's what you mean by faith alone. Yeah, faith alone, meaning faith is the lone instrument in which God uses to justify. And mm-hmm. our justification, the very cause or ground of our justification is the cross work of Christ. Mm-hmm. So when Paul says over and over and over that we're justified through faith with no modification, no addition, he means putting your faith in Christ. In an ob- There has to be an object of your faith. And right. of course, w- when he says save through Christ, like in Romans 5.1, Having been justified, it's a passive verb, meaning it was done to you. Having been justified from faith, it's the instrumental precondition from faith or by faith in some translations. Having been justified by faith, it says we have a rene. We, you know, it's an indicative verb there. We have it. Mm-hmm. We have peace through Jesus Christ, through our Lord Jesus Christ. And that peace, Brody, is not when Paul mentions peace in these kind of contexts in the context of justification. It's not the piece that, you know, you got your bills paid or you're, you know, you landed somewhere in some on vacation. Now you're at peace because all everything's, you know, fine in your life and all these things, not that kind of piece. Paul is dealing with reconciliation, yeah. which comes through faith alone, not faith and works. And normally why Paul says faith and there's no modification, there's no addition because he wants you to know that we're saved through faith alone and not by anything that you do, because he always contrasts it with works. Right, right. And and some people will say, well, you know, they'll add, well, you have to be baptized or you have to, you know, they'll, they'll want to add something else. But yeah, you're right. It's Yeah, were you, right you were baptized, right? Yeah, I was. I was twice, baptized. Actually. And how can you, it's very interesting. Uh, here's why I asked that, because I was baptized. Actually, I was baptized three times I, as a six months old at a Presbyterian church by my house where I grew up. I found that baptismal document actually not that long ago. I didn't know I had it. And then um, I was baptized in uh, Reseda, at Reseda First Baptist Church. And when I went to Israel in the 90s, uh, I was baptized there in the Jordan just for the novelty of it. So yeah, I have all fun. bases I covered. That too. Yeah, yeah. But here's the thing. When you were baptized, when I was baptized, I had to walk up to the baptismal tank. I had to look around and I had to you know, listen to the pastor baptizing me. And then he would have me repeat some things. So I had to talk, I had to repeat things. And then I had to physically step into the tank, you know, at this Baptist church. And like most people, they had to physically walk into a tank and I had to hold my hands and I had to plug my nose and, and um, hold my chest. And then he dunked me, you know, he would say a few more things. He would dunk me and I came back up. I had to take a breath. I had to do all this energy. How can you say baptism is not a work? It requires all kinds of works from walking, from holding your breath, from shaking your hair. I had long hair back then. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's a work. And Paul says we're not saved by righteous works. Right. Yeah. <clears throat> it's, it's, it's just a thing that we do to show people that we are dying to ourselves. And yeah, the thief on the cross wasn't baptized. I'll just say that. No. And um, we just, I just quoted um, uh, in Acts, I just quoted 1036. Hmm. And it says, peace through Jesus Christ, his Lord over all. But in verse 43, everyone believing, uh, believing and having faith are from the same Greek term. Everyone putting their faith, right, in a real sense. Mm -hmm. Um, In him, Peter says, receives forgiveness of sins. It doesn't say anything about works. It says putting your faith, everyone believing, right, it's a participle, all those now who are believing in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. There's no works involved. Mm -hmm. It's faith alone. Works can never do it. That's why. Right. Okay, go ahead, carry on. Um, I... So, <clears throat> interesting, the first the first test, really, um, I always look at this test by the Apostle John. It's It really is the Orthodox Biblical Confession. When I say Orthodox, I don't mean the Orthodox Church. I mean sound Biblical Confession. Um, if you're a true Christian, you're going to have these confessions, like Matthew 16, uh, 16, 18. We believe he's the Christ, the Son of God. That's not, ne- look, that's not negotiable. You can't believe Jesus is not God and say, I'm a Christian, um, or I'm pleasing God by my works. No, you're rejecting the Lord. If you deny that he's God, the Son, Son of God, Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of God. And Jesus said, on that confession, I'll build my church. Um, and that's our confession. And also, there's other confessions that we have as true Christians. Um, Romans 10, 9, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, confessing Jesus as Yahweh or Jesus as Lord. 
um, the gospel and so on and so forth. But the Apostle John is very interesting. He gives a test in 1 John 4, 3 and 4. He says, by this you, you'll know. First, he says, don't believe every, every spirit, every person. Many false teachers have gone out into the world. He's speaking specifically of Gnostics. Um, he says, don't believe every, every person because a lot of false teachers are out there. Then he says in verse 3, this is how you know the spirit of God. Every spirit or person that confesses, we see that word confession a lot in the New Testament, um, homo legao, legao it, just, <clears throat> it just means an inward affirmation as truth, right? It can manifest through the mouth, but it doesn't have to. You know, we're not saying that if you're mute, you can't be saved, you know, um, but confessing as fact, right? Every spirit or person that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist. And here's what's interesting. When John says every person or spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, that is a perfect tense. Um, Eleuthera, which denotes coming in the flesh, a past completed action, his incarnation, with continuous results. Remember what Jesus said on the cross. It's recorded as a perfect tense. It is finished. To tell us die, that's a perfect tense, meaning a past completed action is crosswork. But yet I can I can proclaim the faith to someone. They can believe today, even though his crosswork was two thousand years ago. Complete past action with continuous results. So literally, John would say is saying, Whoever confesses Jesus Christ has come and remains in the flesh. His perpetual incarnation is God. If you don't believe this, this is the Antichrist. So John's pretty adamant about confessing a perpetual incarnation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's interesting the when we look at saving faith, because demons believe, right? They believe right. in monotheism, and they I'm sure they're confident they believe in all the nuts and bolts of theology, probably better than a lot of us. But James says well, demons actually, believe. Go ahead. No, go ahead. I was just going to say, you said demons believe. I mean, the man that was full of demons, um, they called out to Jesus. They recognized who he was. Exactly. Exactly. They they would get an A in theology class. Right, because they recognize he's God, and they were scared. So the New Testament says, whoever believes, Jesus said in John six forty seven, everyone who believes now has eternal life. Well, why aren't they saved? Why aren't the demons saved? Because they believe, the same word is used, right? We yeah. believe, have eternal life. James says the demons believe. Because salvifically, in the context of salvation, the word to have faith or to believe consists of knowledge of who he is, which demons have, the factual knowledge. It also consists of assenting to these facts as true, but also, and here's what the demons don't have, trusting in him for your salvation. And so that's why it's different, even though the same word is used, contextually it's dealing with a salvific context. Knowledge, assent, and trust. It's not theoretical or transient, but it's continuous and it's ongoing. And one of the best you know, I look at one of the one of my favorite features in the literature of John is the ongoing verbs he uses denoting true salvation. Um, to make it easy, a and it, the the New Testament New Testament Greek is filled with this Greek is filled with this verb this time kind of tense a participle. Simply put, a present tense participle denotes roughly denotes an ongoing action. Roughly, um, for instance, the participle of run would be running. In other words. John uses so many participles denoting true Christian faith. For instance, in John 3, 16, everyone believing, right? See the I-N-G? Sometimes it's not reflective. In, it doesn't reflect in our translation. But in John 3, 16, literally, it's a present tense participle, pistuon, all the ones believing have eternal life. Same with 1 John 5, 1 and 1 John 5, 12. Everyone believing in the Son has life. Also, um, John 5, 24, everyone hearing, Jesus says, Literally, uh, a kuon, it's a participle. Truly, truly, I say unto you that the one literally hearing my words, participle, and we have that verb again for believe, believing, see the two participles, hearing my word, believing the one who sent, has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over from death to life. These are present tense participles. And, you know, all through scripture, all through particularly John's literature, these are are used. The one overcoming, like in Revelation. Can I ask you um, where he's saying, ask, and it shall be given unto you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and the door shall be open. Is that an asking, seeking, knocking? Uh, it, they're not participles, but they're present tense verbs. So, and the question is, who is Jesus speaking to, believers or not non-believers, right? 
mm-hmm. because sometimes it's misappropriate. These verses are misapplied as a zillion other verses are. Um, and they apply it in revivals and all these things. But Jesus was speaking to believers. He always wants us to ask and knock and seek. That's the life of a Christian, right? Mm-hmm. We call this progressive sanctification. Mm-hmm. We're always, you know, um, in the church of Laodicea, it says, Jesus said, I stand at the door and knock. I stand at the door and knock. Whoever opens, you know, I will come into him and dine with him. Um, I know this is another verse that is misappropriated at at revivals. The problem is Jesus wasn't talking to non-believers there. He was talking to the church of Laodicea. For us, that means he's always knocking on our door. He always wants more of us, right? That's the Christian life. We call this progressive sanctification. It's a growth process. And Jesus is always, he doesn't just leave us. He always is knocking at the door. This is speaking to the church of Laodicea. Yeah. Um, so we see this subjective evidence of true Christianity um, having a sufficient and ac- accurate profession of Jesus Christ. And I say accurate because these days everyone confesses some kind of Christ, right? Everyone mm-hmm. has a different definition of, of, of the phrase son of God. The Jehovah Witnesses have a bizarre definition mm-hmm. that means, you know, he's less than just like your child. You know, he's not as great as you or he's less than ontologically, though. Mm-hmm. So it's interesting when they use that that analogy of the child. Well, the child ontologically is equal in his humanity as the father. But nevertheless, they look at son of God as being less than the almighty. But of course, as you know, um, in a Jewish mind, to be the son of something meant you possess the very essence of that person. We're sons, though, by adoption. Jesus was son ontologically by nature. So an accurate, sufficient, sufficient. You don't have to you know, know everything about scripture and be a scholar, but you have to have sufficient evidence. You have to have an accurate pro- uh, profession of who Jesus Christ is, the Jesus Christ a biblical revelation that he was God in the flesh, distinct from the Father, and sufficient um, knowledge of his atoning crosswork that is the very means of justification, and a transformed life. And that's basically the subjective evidence. Um, I won't say in contrast, but there is the objective evidence, and there's four points on this. Um, the evidence of the reliability of the New Testament, that's important. i just been dialoguing with this guy. He just doesn't like a whole lot of things um, in the Bible but he professes to be a Christian. Mm. You know, what, what's wrong with that? Well, Paul says all scripture is thaapanustas, God breathed out. And these people, and I'm sure you met a lot of them, who they believe the passages in the Bible that conform to their lifestyle, right? That they, they like, you know? So those are true. The passages that conform with their lifestyle are true. But the ones that contradict their lifestyle, those aren't true. You know, that was Paul, not, not Jesus. He wasn't God. You know, that was the opinion of man. But on the things that do comport with their lifestyle, that well, those things are true. Well, the problem there is, as Augustine pointed out, people that do that, that cherry pick and they reject the things they don't like, they don't believe in the Bible. They believe in themselves because they become the ultimate source or ultimate interpreter, the ultimate guardian of the Bible, right? We Interesting. Take, yeah, we take all of scripture, even the places yeah. we don't like. You know, and there's a lot of places that are going to contradict our lifestyle. But I I can't tell you, Rody, how many Christians have that attitude when it comes to biblical doctrine. They like they have pet theologies, but they reject the things that that they don't agree with philosophically or theologically. They object them as, well, that was man's opinion or something, you know, but the objective evidence is the reliability of the New Testament. It was the words of God, both the Old and New Testament. The evidence of the doctrine of the Trinity. My pastor um, years ago used to call that smorgasbord Christianity, exactly. where you just take what you want and forget the rest. You know, it, we have to resist, Rody. I think all of us have to resist pet doctrines where we have these, you know, they, we don't want to know if they're not accurate because they are pet doctrines. We've had them for, for so many years. Or, for instance, um, many of us have been hearing a verse quoted and interpreted for years and years and years. And the truth of that passage in, in our mind is always based on tradition because that's how we heard it quoted, never exegetically confirming it, whether it's John 3, 16 or whatever, because we don't want to know. All we know is that's how we've been hearing. We've been hearing that interpretation our whole lives, and therefore it's true. Mm-hmm. So they're, they're putting their truth based on tradition, not exegetical confirmation. Not that tradition is always wrong, but we have to confirm certain things, even if we don't like it. We have to be willing to divest ourselves of these pet doctrines. Yeah. And the same pastor used to say to us, don't believe what I'm saying up here. You know, I'm not perfect. You know, when you get home, check it out with the word of God. And, you know, we should check it out and we should 
I think we should know how to check it out because a lot of Christians, you know, they, they, I get this all the time. I study a lot. You know, I've seen this. I study from a concordance. I know they're, of course, it, as soon as they say that, it just shoots their argument down because you don't study biblical doctrine from a concordance. But anyways, um, a lot of Christians, they really want to study, but unfortunately a lot of, and I'm talking true Christians, they don't know how to study. And so they don't know how to discern truth from falsity and they'll, they'll pray about something and see if it's true. And the problem with that is that becomes extraordinarily subjective. I've heard people pray about things. They think it's true and it, it's just counters the scripture somewhere, but they feel it. You know, our hearts are f- very, very fallible. Deceitfully <laughs> our hearts are deceitfully wicked. Yeah. I mean, we can be just dece- look, Paul. How about this, Rody? Paul spent his Christian life in virtually all of his epistles, except um, Philemon and, um, and Philippians, except those two, two letters. All the other letters was purposely written to undeceive the church and to uh, uh, correct and affirm doctrine and to refute some kind of heresy. What does that tell you about the Christians? You know, we we need help and we need to learn how to study so we won't be deceived. And we well, even back then, I mean, the right away um, there was there was stuff coming out in the church that was contrary to what was true. Yeah, they were being influenced by all kinds of groups, Gnostics, Judaizers, you know. Um, and look, the, the in Galatians, Paul says, you know, if anyone's preaches a different gospel in verses 8 and 9, let him be anathema. Even an angel from heaven, let him be um, anathema, meaning set before God for destruction. That's the, the That would be the lexical semantic, the meaning of that Greek term translated, let him be a curse. Strongest word Paul could have ever used. Look, the Gnostics or the Judaizers uh, of whom he was speaking, they they believed Jesus was Messiah. They had no problem with that. They believed you had to have faith. You know what their problem was? They also believed you had to do Old Testament rituals, particularly circumcision, in order to achieve salvation. That made Paul's blood boil. You know what that means? Groups that hold to the Trinity, the deity of Christ, the physical resurrection, the ascension, all these things— but deny justification through faith alone are not embracing the gospel that Paul preached because they're adding, again, they're adding works, meritorious works to the cross work of Christ. That's why Paul said, let him be anathema. And then Colossians, first and second Peter also and Jude, they're all written as a anti-Gnostic polemic, whereas Romans, Ephesians, particularly Galatians, anti-Judaizer polemic, right? So the Holy Spirit devoted a whole lot of space to apologetics, to presenting a, um, a, a biblical affirmation of the gospel. whole lot of space devoted for that. And I think pastors would do well if they understood their responsibility to teach doctrine and not just to tell stories and, you know, videos and whatever else they do. They need to teach doctrine. That's what the, plat- uh, the pulpit is. That, the, yeah. They use that platform to teach theology, to increase the theology, to make people strong in their faith. Because, Rody, if you go out there, I mean, not you, but any Christian goes out there and tries, you know, he meets someone on the street and he was never taught what the Trinity is or the deity of Christ or evangelism. What is he going to say? He might say, you know, God told me, or he might mis- misapply Jeremiah 29, 11. Guy, hey man, God has a great plan for you, you know, because he's never taught and he does more damage than good. But um, yeah, we have a, we have a responsibility to ourselves to be equipped sufficiently. And we have a responsibility, pastors especially have a responsibility to teach. So the evidence for reliability of the New Testament, of course, if we have time, we can go through some of the evidences. Um, I'll, I'll say one thing. It's amazing. It's remarkable to me. Um, there's, a, there's at least 25 or 26 possible second century Greek manuscripts that we have, meaning uh, Greek, a manuscript was a document written in the same language, Greek manuscript of the New Testament, about 25 or 26 within these second century within these 26 manuscripts. We have about 40 or 50% of the New Testament. It's incredible. There's no other books that even compare to the veracity and reliability of the New Testament. Then there's the evidence for the doctrine of Trinity. I asked, Rody, I ask this question all the time when I speak in this country. Um, I remember the first time I asked it was in South Africa at a giant church because so I was teaching on the Trinity. I said, who here? In the very beginning, I asked this, who here has heard a message specifically on the Trinity in the last 10 years at any church. Because how many hands I got. I just got a lot of nods of the head. You know, they, they didn't know what to do because they never heard a message on the Trinity. I asked the same question about the deity of Christ, justification through faith alone. But then I asked about end times and everyone, every hand went up just about. But I, that's common in a lot of churches. You know, they're just not teaching the Trinity. Why is that important? 
<clears throat> because our salvation is predicated on the fact that God the Father sent God the Son. God the Son became flesh. He lived the perfect life on behalf of his people vicariously. He died taking the payment of sin. He literally died taking the payment of sin. He averted the wrath due our account, right, due to us because of sin. He physically resurrected. He ascended to the Father. The Holy Spirit is sent to regenerate sinners based on faith in Christ. Justification is very, as mentioned, the very means is the crosswork of Christ. The Holy Spirit is sent to empower us and to regenerate sinners. We see the whole Trinity involved in our salvation. It's probably God's, as I see it, it's God's highest revelation to in Scripture is the doctrine of how he revealed himself. If you're not clear in the doctrine of the Trinity, you should get clear because it, it has to do with every dimension of evangelism. As soon as you say Jesus is God, and most people don't in evangelism, I don't know why, Jesus said in John 8, 24, unless you believe that I'm God, you're going to perish. That's how important the fact that Jesus was God in the flesh. And as soon as you say Jesus is God, someone might ask you a question. Well, how is Jesus God and the Father God? Uh-oh, now you got to explain the Trinity in very sufficient ways and never, ever, ever use analogies. I know people like to use analogies for the Trinity, but the, none of them work. Most of them are oneness or Mormon, meaning they separate the persons or they make Jesus the father. And that's because they don't know what to say. That's be, they use analogies. They don't know what to say. They've never been taught the high, God's highest revelation to, to man is the doctrine of the Trinity, how he reveals himself. I know. And there are people that think that, you know, God, the father turned into God, the son turned into God, the Holy Spirit turned back into God, the son. I, I don't get it. But there are people that because they don't know how to explain it, they think that. Um, but I, I do want to say a couple of things that you mentioned. Um, number one, way at the beginning, you mentioned Yahweh. And I think you said it in conjunction with Jesus, you said something about Jesus being the Messiah, Yahweh is Lord. Um, so is is Yahweh interchangeable with Jesus? Like I I in my mind, I think of God the Father as being Yahweh, because when Moses was there, he said, What is your name? And um he, he, that's where Yahweh um came in. He, he said, I you know, I am. But is that name also being used for for God the Son? I, I never thought it was inter interchangeable. And that's a that's a great um, uh, that's a great question. Keep in mind, Yahweh would be at the same equality of 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 nature as the word God, Elohim in speaking of the true God, and Yahweh. They're not, you know, they're they're used they're fungible terms, meaning they're used interchangeably to. A, to um, describe the one true God. So when we speak about Yahweh, we're speaking about God. Yahweh revealed himself as three persons. In other words, what we find in the New Testament, it's very interesting. We find places where the New Testament authors, they will quote an Old Testament passage referring to Yahweh, like Romans 10, 13. We saw Romans 10, 9. And that's, I'll tell you why I quoted it that way. They will quote an Old Testament passage speaking of Yahweh, but yet they apply it to Christ. In Philippians, yeah. in in Romans ten nine, for instance, or verse thirteen and ten nine, it says, "If you confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, right, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved." But if you follow the the pronoun right trail in verse ten, someone believe um, whoever believes, right, um, the one believes thus has righteousness, and then it says the one who confesses says believe with his mouth and confesses thus have salvation. So same context, confessing Jesus as Lord for salvation. Then in verse 11, Paul says, for scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Well, the closest antecedent to the, the pronoun him is Jesus. That's the closest named person, right? So still speaking about Christ, whoever believes in him, in Christ, as in verse 9, confessing Christ as Lord. And in verse 12, there's no distinction between the Jew and Greek, the same Lord who's Lord over all. So far, Paul only mentioned one Lord, confessing Jesus as Lord, right? Mm -hmm. The same Lord who is Lord over all. And then in verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So the Lord there and the name there refers to the closest name person, Christ. There's not a switch of persons, but Paul quotes Joel 2.32, whoever mm -hmm. calls upon the name of Yahweh will be saved. Paul yeah. quotes that and applies it to Christ. So whoever confesses Christ says Yahweh. And okay. it says Lord, but keep in mind, Rody, 
in the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the Old Testament, when they would translate, and this is the, the primary translation that the New Testament apostles use when they quote the Old Testament passages. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they quoted from different translations. They, also, they quoted from Hebrew. They quoted from the Targum. They quoted from the um, Samaritan Pentateuch. But also, they, mostly, they quoted from the Septuagint because that was the language that most people read. Not many Jews knew how to read Hebrew after leaving captivity. So, oh, go, go ahead. When they oh. would come to Yahweh in the Old Testament, they translated as Kurios, Lord. So when we see Lord in a religious context in the New Testament, particularly when it's quoting from an Old Testament, like in 1013, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, Hebrew has Yahweh. Septuagint has Kurios, Lord. It means the same thing. So the answer is yes, Jesus is identified as the Yahweh of many Old Testament passages, as the Father is, and as the Holy Spirit is in Hebrews 10. Okay, so the other question that I have, and I I know that we've got only about eight minutes, but I've heard people say the Old Testament is talking about the Messiah coming, and the New Testament is about the Messiah's here and his teaching. But I, I, I really challenge that because not only does it talk about the Messiah coming, but it many, 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 many passages talks about what he did as the son, what he did and appeared, say, with Jacob. Or it, it was really not God the Father, but God the Son there. Would, would you agree? Or is it all about he was never there? You know, it's interesting. Most Christians would not have that view, but what you just communicated is absolutely the truth. You mentioned Moses and Yahweh appearing to Moses. If you go back a few verses, it says Yahweh appeared, but who is the speaker? Who was actually there? It was the angel of the Lord, Mm -hmm. who is not the father. In fact, the angel Lord in Zechariah um, uh, 112 prays to Yahweh, right? But the angel Lord identified himself What did he say to Moses? Remember, he spoke in the burning bush. He says, I am what I am. But what did he say in verse six? This is the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord said, I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. I am the God of your fathers, right? I am the God of, this is what the angel of the Lord said. He identified himself as Yahweh. The person in the burning bush was Yahweh, but the angel of the Lord. Same with Jacob. Um, Hagar in, in Genesis, the first occurrence of the angel of the Lord, she says to him, she knew who he was. She says, and as recorded in the Septuagint, you, angel of the Lord, are ha Thaos, the God who sees all. Mm-hmm. And then one more in Genesis 19.24, very interesting. Um, in Genesis 18, we see three visitors, right? Abraham mm-hmm. wanted to wash their feet and feed them and um, show hospitality. But as you read chapter 18, we read one of the visitors who are called angels in chapter 19. One of the visitors was the main speaker. And, you know, he tells Sarah laughed at him, Mm -hmm. but he says, I'm going to come here next year. But he identified himself as Yahweh. And then you fast forward to chapter 19, the same narrative. Interesting, the the chapter 19, I think verse one or two, we read this. And then the two angels. Well, wait a sec. I thought there was three. Three. Yeah. Because one of them was the main speaker. And the one of them was identifying himself as Yahweh. And I'm going to make you the father of many nations. This was Yahweh speaking, but yet it was one of the visitors. And then it culminates with the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah in verse 24. The early church used to use this to show God was triune. Here's what we read. And then Yahweh rained brimstone and fire on Sodom and Gomorrah from Yahweh out from heaven. Mm. Now, wait a second. You have a Yahweh here and a Yahweh there. You have Yahweh doing something on behalf of Yahweh. Yeah, that's consistent with monotheism in the context of monotheistic Trinitarianism, where you have two persons who are identified as Yahweh. Clearest verse there, 1924 of Genesis. In fact, there's no textual variant. There's no, you know, it's not ambiguous. And non-believing Jews have a horrible time trying to explain that. But pre-Christian Jews had a at least a more coherent time because they would explain in it because um they would show that there's two powers. I mean, they're trying to get away from the, you know, the, the obvious evidence of the Trinity, but we see a multi-personal God in the Old Testament. Absolutely. The angel of the Lord was the son. They interacted with him. They prayed to him. They embraced him. They identified himself, him, the angel of the Lord as Yahweh. Yet you look at Zechariah 1.12 and Yahweh prayed to Yahweh. And there's many other angel Lord prayed to Yahweh. And there's many other places where you see this distinction. So yeah, Jesus was alive and active. Um, John 8.40, when Jesus is having heavy debate with the Jews, 
they wanted to kill him. And Jesus says this, and now get this, and I'll quote it very slow. Jesus says, as it is, I'm paraphrasing, you want to kill me. You, you non-believing Jews, you want to kill me. This is something Abraham did not want to do. You see that? This this is something Abraham did not want to do. And we, what do you mean? He didn't want to, because Jesus, as the angel of the Lord, interacted with Abraham, and he didn't want to kill the angel of the Lord. And he says that, so he's affirming his preexistence. So yes, um, Jesus was alive. He was very active in the Old Testament, and all the saints look forward to Christ. And you might say it's a Christological book, the Old Testament, because it yeah. centers on Christ. Wow. Um, I, I have a couple of really, really big questions. I, I can't even do it justice to even ask you now. I probably will have to ask you off the air. But um, I, I do want to thank you for coming. I, I, I know you have much, much more to say. But I do want to make it available for those that are listening to invite Jesus into your heart. Um, he's, salvation is for you. We talked about John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave Jesus, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever, whosoever is you, whosoever is all of us, the whole world. So if you would like to invite Jesus into your heart today, please ask him in your own words to forgive you for your sin. Thank him for dying on the cross for you and invite him into your heart. Thank you so much, listeners. But thank you so much, um, Edward, for Dr. Edward Delcour and Thank you so much for joining us today. I so appreciate it. And thank you for those of you that are listening. Please join us again here on The Road with Jesus. Bye for now. We love you. Thank you for being here today for On the Road with Jesus with your host, Rody Fisher. Every week, you'll hear experiences and testimonies from her and her friends as they share their journey with Jesus. You'll see that you're not alone in your search for God, your victories with Him, or your failures. If you have a question about today's show, email Rody Fisher at rawfisher at ontheroadwithjesus.com, spelled R-A-H-F-I-S-H-E-R at ontheroadwithjesus.com, or leave a voicemail at 951-817-0094. That's 951-817-0094. On the Road with Jesus is sponsored by Global Expressions Language Project. Learn more at asquaredlamps.org. That's the letter A, squaredlamps.org. Be sure to join us each week at this same time for more On the Road with Jesus, hosted by Rody Fisher. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here. Here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never before seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. Salemnow.com.